so I'm going to invite us all to think back to a night that I think if you really thought about it, you'd be able to figure out what this night was and you would remember it. November 8th, 2016. If the date doesn't ring a bell, I'm guessing you were maybe doing something like this video would show. This is election night in America. I can't believe after all this, it's going to finally be over. I don't know. We'll see. Trump's already got lawyers to fight the results. <laughs> okay, so. don't even joke about that or I will leave. Guys, we're about to have our first woman president. Like, this is going to be a historic night. Yeah, yeah, it might be a historic night, but just don't forget, it's a big country. We skip ahead a little, 10 p.m. Hey, guys, what did I miss? For him. Yeah, I, I don't get you ladies. I mean, the country's 55% women. I mean, if the country was 55% black, well, we'd have tons of black presidents. I mean, Flavor Flav would be president. You never know, guys. Alaska's still out there. We're now calling Alaska for Donald Trump. Oh my God. I think America is racist. Oh, my God. You know, I remember my great-grandfather told me something like that. But, you know, he was like a slave or something. I just, I can't believe it. Like, why aren't people turning out for Hillary the way they did for Barack Obama? I mean, maybe because you're replacing a charismatic 40-year-old black guy with a 70-year-old white woman. I mean, that's like the Knicks replacing Patrick Ewan with Neil Patrick Harris. Donald Trump has been elected President of the United States. Yeah, you guys are right. It's a historic night. Don't worry about it. Eight years are going to fly by. Yeah, don't worry. It's going to be all white. <laughs> what about undocumented immigrants? Oh, they're not going nowhere. Come on, man. You act like everybody trying to pick their own strawberries. <laughs> to be a woman in this country where you can't get ahead no matter what you do. Oh, jeez, I don't know. Let me put my thinking cap on on that one. I'll get back. <laughs> now, come on, guys. Get some rest. You got a lot of big day. You got a big day of moping and writing on Facebook tomorrow. God, this is the most shameful thing America has ever done. <laughs> you remember it, right? Yeah, probably all too well. However you felt about the outcome, November 8, 2016 was a historic moment. It was a revealing moment. It was a gut check kind of moment. But depending on your own perspective, it may not have been a particularly surprising one. One of the things I think this sketch brilliantly illustrated 
was the impact of our perspectives on our understanding of what is taking place, right? The white people in this sketch, likely professionals, well-educated urban liberals who saw themselves probably as post-racial, queer inclusive, supporters of women's rights, they were shocked in a way that the people of color in the sketch were not, right? For the people of color here, the fact that we're still living in a country in which racial tension can be easily stoked, white supremacy is effective in generating fear and consolidating power, this was not a surprise. Your life experience impacts your perspective, and your perspective impacts what you can see, right? We uh, have some handouts for those of you who appreciate that. You totally don't need to use them, but there will be some fill in the blanks, and this is the first one. Your life experience impacts your perspective, and your perspective impacts what you can see. So you can just grab one around you if you want. When this night happened, our church had been holding services for about six months. We were a totally newborn community. And here we found ourselves, from the beginning, wrestling from early in our existence with how our different perspectives impacted what we saw. We were a small group at the time, even smaller than we are, um, and a significant portion of our community, probably at least a third at that moment, was non-white. Yet as a community formed largely by folks who are emerging from evangelical church backgrounds, we were compelled to wrestle with the way that white evangelicals overwhelmingly supported Trump leaving many of our evangelical brothers and sisters of color feeling betrayed. As a community that from the beginning has been fully LGBTQ inclusive and home to a growing number of queer and trans folks, we understood in an even deeper way how that position put us at combative odds with the traditions we had emerged from. As a pastor formed in these traditions, I felt my own need to reckon with the unsavory parts of my own upbringing. I needed to examine how my experience had impacted my perspective and how my perspective impacted what I could see. Well, today, we're starting a new teaching series here at Haven. It's a series that's actually revisiting a conversation we had as a community a couple of years ago in the aftermath of that momentous night. It's a conversation about this very dynamic, about the ways our experiences impact our perspectives and our, and our perspectives impact what we can see. And I want to revisit this conversation now for a couple of reasons. In part, I think it's useful because the makeup of our community has changed significantly in the last couple of years since we last openly had it. A lot of you weren't here for the series the first time around. Uh, and for those of you who were, the conversation felt so important to informing the character of what we've become, what we're becoming, that I think it seems worth bringing more folks into that conversation, including some of you who are here for the first time today and wondering what this whole Haven community is about. I hope that this series might actually be a really good introduction to that. But this isn't just about getting newer folks up to speed. I also want to revisit the conversation um, almost two years after we first had it because even for those of us who were here for it, I don't think we said all there is to say, all we need to say. 
I think there's more to unpack on this topic. I have more to learn. I am trying to learn it communally with you. And I think that's gonna be the case for a while. This may be a conversation we need to return to again and again over the years. So let's go back to this question of perspectives. Some social scientists suggest that we have metaphorical glasses, I have an image for you, that are made up of frames and lenses. Okay, the frames in this illustration are the larger like macro parts of our identity, race, religion, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and so on. The lenses that fit within them are more like individual. These can include our personalities, our birth orders, our individual life experiences, and so on. The frames and the lenses work together to shape our perspective on the world. This is like essentially the chief insight of postmodernism, right? Modernism thought maybe we could have an objective view of things. But postmodernism reminded us that that's like, there's just more than one way to see the same thing. True objectivity is really hard, if not impossible. And while I think most of us would probably, you know, good postmoderns acknowledge at this point that there are various perspectives through which we experience the world, we may not always be aware of how imbalanced these can be. Okay, this is the next slide. We may not always be aware of how imbalanced these things can be. The reality is that rarely are these different perspectives just held well in tension, right? Instead, problematic patterns tend to emerge. As many social scientists have discovered, societies tend to elevate the frames and lenses or points of view of certain groups and diminish the views of others, right? So one group's perspective dominates and is considered normal, while another perspective is seen as abnormal, exotic. Scholars who study social group dynamics recognize that this pattern is central, ultimately, to the development of systems of oppression. That's a big word we heard thrown around a lot, right? What do I mean when I talk about oppression? Well, Robin D'Angelo is an author, speaker, and academic in the field of race theory, um, and she says it this way. Oppression describes a set of policies, practices, traditions, norms, definitions, cultural stories, and explanations that functions to systematically hold down one social group to the benefit of another social group. Make sense? Oppression is less of an individual dynamic. It's not so much about just what happens between me and you. It's a group dynamic, a system-wide social dynamic. It's not simply about our individual lenses. It's about the frames the lenses are placed in. Now, of course, this happens along a variety of spectrums, right? There's oppression between men and women, we call that sexism. Oppression between whites and people of color, we call racism. Uh, able-bodied folks, differently abled is ableism. And I would assume that most of us with our good Bay Area glasses, you know, are familiar with these concepts. We could name other systems of oppression we've, we've seen at play. Perhaps we do work to try to actively dismantle some of these systems of oppression. But if you're anything like me, many of us have been exposed to these kind of conversations about competing perspectives and systems of oppression outside of church, right? Away from the sphere of considering how our lives of faith 
actually play a role in these conversations. We may have talked about them openly in the classroom, we may have talked about them at the workplace, on Facebook, but to talk about oppressive systems in our churches meant getting political, which at least in the tradition I was formed in was pretty taboo. For this reason, when we at Haven started to ask, just ask questions that challenge this taboo, a number of folks couldn't hang with the conversation, ended up finding spiritual homes elsewhere, which I understand. But despite the challenge of talking frankly about these questions here, I feel now more than ever that there are compelling reasons why we as a young church must honestly and urgently reckon with these issues and examine the lenses and frames at work in the context of our own faith community. I'm just gonna name two reasons why. First, you can't fix what you don't acknowledge, right? You can't fix what you don't acknowledge. Social scientists would tell us systems of oppression will replicate until they are directly confronted, right? If we try to simply remain neutral, we end up reinforcing an oppressive status quo. Number two, our faith gives us. Our faith, I believe, actually gives us a unique perspective and an empowering presence in the work of confronting oppression. As people of faith, I believe we are compelled by a divine spirit that is committed to the flourishing of all creation that leads us forward, empowering us to be a part of the change we want to see. And we have a rich theological landscape to build upon in this work. To leave the work of dismantling oppressive systems outside the church means to miss out on the potent tools our faith has given us to tear the systems down. No, our Bible doesn't use metaphors like frames and lenses, like our social scientists. The texts within our Bible were written before either frames or lenses existed. But our sacred texts do talk extensively about the problems that come when we humans take things that we create and we become invested in them and then we elevate them to the status of ultimate truth, of ultimate reality, of divinity, you could say. The word the Bible uses is idolatry. Now most of us have probably heard the word idolatry. Likely what comes to mind is this specific version we saw in the ancient world, the worship or veneration of idols, generally like physical statues, icons that have been crafted for this purpose. The practice was nearly universal in the ancient world. We see it archaeologically in the earliest societies um, from, from all over the globe. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, ancients throughout Asia, Africa, and the Americas all participated in this kind of idolatry. And beginning with the stories in the Torah of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish and Christian view of it has long been negative, right? We saw it in the first two of the Ten Commandments. 
I am the Lord your God. You brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Yet despite this clear prohibition, the stories make it clear that idolatry is something the people of God continue to struggle with throughout their history. While it might seem pretty cut and dry to us, like, okay, don't make a statue, don't bow to it, fine, I just won't do that, right? Apparently that was really hard to live by, particularly for people in power. And much of the travails of Israel throughout the Hebrew Bible are connected to the fact that their leaders keep bringing in idols again and again. Now, I think it's easy for us to think about idols and idolatry as something just antiquated, perhaps like silly. Most of us don't feel tempted to make a statue or carving and bow down to it, right? The whole idea probably seems ridiculous. But perhaps some of this is because we don't really understand how these idols were functioning. Now, I want to be clear. These practices were widespread, as I said, probably not fully universal, how every culture was understanding what they were doing. But anthropologists have been able to make discoveries about you know, some of the cultures that were practicing idolatry and that are helpful to kind of get into their heads a little bit. And what they've discovered is that often the folks who made the statues, they clearly understood that they had made them, that these statues were indeed man-made, not divine. They didn't like just forget one day, oh, this statue actually came from, the, from above somewhere. No, they knew. But they hoped that the process was, if they made this idol, whatever deity they were paying homage to would come and like inhabit the idol, enliven it, bring it to life in a sense, and become in that way a god or goddess in their home that could work for their favor, right? They could look at this carving on the altar. They could perform a certain prayer or ritual or sacrifice, feed it something that the god or goddess was known to like, and they had this assurance, like, okay, then good things will happen. I will have a baby. We will have rain. Whatever it is they were hoping for. Through their own handiwork, they could induce divine action. That's the goal. To make an idol was to try to make divinity work for you. To make an idol was to try to make divinity work for you. Now, we may not carve things out of wood or stone and hope they'll come to life, do our bidding. But I think that left to our own devices, we do still want to arrange the world in a way that works for us. So could the frames and lenses that we see reality through, these social constructs, these systems we establish to, to support certain sets of metaphorical glasses over others, could that be a way of us creating our means of controlling our realities and securing power in the world, similar to what the ancients were doing with these physical tokens they designed and idolized. You could look at it this way. Perhaps we haven't gotten over making idols. Maybe we've just gotten better at it. Perhaps we haven't gotten over making idols at all. Maybe we've just gotten better at it. We just make more convincing ones, and we call them patriarchy and white supremacy, heteronormativity, even some of our religious systems and structures. 
Might these be the examples of idols in our day? And if so, how might we be called as people of faith to engage with these contemporary idols? This essentially is the question we're engaging in this series that we call Smashing Idols. Each week for the rest of the series, which will take us through the summer, we're going to take a topic in contemporary life, a place in which we see one point of view elevated in a way that can be oppressive to those who don't share it. And we're going to ask, how might idolatry be at play? What might breaking out of this idolatry look like? That's the point of the series. That's the goal. Today, with the rest of this like intro talk, we're just going to spend our time considering briefly this whole practice of idolatry for the ancients, specifically looking at probably the most famous story about idolatry in the Hebrew Bible. Okay? As we look at it, I hope we're going to discover at least a little bit about why our ancient mothers and fathers struggled with this temptation to worship idols, what they were trying to accomplish as they did it, and I hope it'll give us some guideposts on our own journey going forward of discovering and confronting idols in our midst. Make sense? So let's look real quick at Exodus 32. Okay, here's the setup. God has delivered God's people from slavery through stunning acts of supernatural power, right? This is the Ten Commandments movie. This is all of that, right? The plagues, Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses, parting of the Red Sea. Okay, all of that has happened. And now the people of God have been delivered, have been liberated, and they are camped at Mount Sinai. They have been covenanted to God anew, and they've seen God appear on the mountain and talk to Moses, and it's been a while. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know, he's been their intermediary between God and the people. And he's up there a while, and it seems like the people are starting to get a little antsy. And that's where we pick up the story. When the people saw, you can read it with me on the screen, it's also on the sheets, or you can just listen. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And yes, the scholars say that does have a sexy time connotation. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
okay? There's the story. So I'm just going to help us notice a few little things, okay? A few things that I noticed that I think might be relevant to our conversation. First point, idolatry can come when people lose sight of God at work in their midst. That seems to be a factor here. Idolatry can come when people lose sight of God at work in their midst. The Hebrew people felt like God was too long in coming. Never mind that they were just delivered from slavery through lots of miracles and crazy stuff. But here they are. They don't see it anymore. That was last month, right? This month is something different. They're anxious. 40 days and 40 nights feels like a long time not to have an idea of what's happening with God on the mountain and Moses. So they decide to take matters into their own hands. I think that's something we can relate to, right? They didn't see Yahweh at work, so they thought, okay, it's time to get involved to make divinity work for me, right? And honestly, particularly for those of us who come from a white American Protestant background, maybe we can relate. I grew up in my home hearing that phrase, God helps him who helps himself, right? You don't see what you think should be happening? Well, maybe God wants you to do it. And I want to say this is actually connected to some truth. Certainly there's a case to be made that God invites people to play a real role with agency in caring for creation and partnering with the divine to do the stuff of God in the world. But our participation with God in this can easily get distorted, specifically when our anxiety and our need for control distort our capacity to actually follow God's leading, right? When we kind of take over. As the story shows, even our religious leaders can be complicit. Aaron. Aaron means something to the Hebrew people who read this story. Aaron is the forefather of the, the class of priests. He's a hugely important figure in the history of Jewish worship. But in this story, his complicity in creating idols demonstrates how easily even those who are genuinely called by God can be led astray and find themselves corruptly practicing idolatry. In our time, I think much of what we have to untangle as we consider these systems of oppression as idols are the ways that religion has participated in them, perhaps as a means of gaining control, where faith leaders and institutions felt a lack of it. Last week, just last week, we got the news of yet another act of violence performed to desecrate the sanctuary of people of faith, the anti-Semitic violence this time at a Chabad in Poway. This hits close to home for me. Poway is the town next door to where I grew up. My hometown, Escondido, is the town where the mosque was that the Poway shooter also attacked recently. And what we now know about this young man is that a good chunk of his justification for what he was doing was connected to his distorted, I would say, understanding of the Christian faith. He felt a need to defend it. As people of faith, we have to acknowledge 
and confront our complicity in religious systems that fuel violence. We cannot allow our fear for our own communities, our worry over some loss of, so, of control or some respect in the public square, or what are people going to say about us on Twitter, our concern about shrinking numbers in the pews or smaller tithing bases to pay our bills. We cannot allow these things to compel us to participate in systems that ultimately wield power by violating the sacredness of others. Amen? Oh, no! To do so is not to honor God. I believe it is to break the divine heart. We have to be aware that idolatry can come when we feel like we lose sight of God at work in our midst. Perhaps one beginning response I will offer is this. We choose to accept and even expect mystery, ambiguity, and uncertainty as natural components of endeavors of faith. We choose to accept and even expect mystery, ambiguity, and uncertainty as natural components of endeavors of faith. What if the people at the foot of the mountain had been so impatient and insecure? What if they just waited a bit, stood in the mystery, looking at the cloud and wondering what was going on inside? How different could the story have been? The second thing I notice in this story that seems meaningful to me is this. Idolatry can come as those who receive resources become those who grasp and exploit them. Idolatry can come as those who receive resources become those who grasp and exploit them. And here I'm going to turn your attention to the gold, the jewelry. These folks were all just slaves in Egypt. Where do they get all this gold to make a calf with, right? Where, is that, where are all those earrings coming from? And this goes back to Exodus 12. Okay, do you remember this part of the story? The Israelites did as Moses instructed. This is as they're getting ready to depart. They're being let go. Pharaoh's relenting. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Y'all, they got reparations. Seriously, it's in Exodus. The Hebrew slaves were not sent out empty handed. They were given lots of stuff. God secured them reparations. And here is what happened with it. What a waste that this gold that could have been used for their flourishing in the promised land is being melted into a calf. Eventually, some of them are going to be forced to drink it. What a waste. Rather than looking to Yahweh for how they should appropriate what they've been given. In a moment of insecurity, they took matters into their own hands. And how often has this been the story throughout history? Those who've been released from oppression then turn around and oppress someone else. 
it's a long, old story. Rather than learning from their oppression and living in a way that furthers justice and equity for all, sometimes folks concentrate their resources in ways they seek to build their own power. And it doesn't usually go well. All of us may have circumstances in which our fortunes can change, in which we find ourselves with a power we didn't have before. But if we're careful, if we're not careful, idolatry can come as we who receive resources become those who grasp and exploit them. So perhaps one beginning response could be that we reflect on the ways we've received our resources and the ways we can commit to regularly sharing them to directly participate in greater generosity and equity throughout God's creation. Amen? We be reflective on what we've received and committed to living differently. There's a third point I noticed from this story that I think is helpful to keep in mind. Idolatry can come as we change the narrative. Idolatry can come as we change the narrative. Do you notice this? The folks change the story of what they had just been through. They change the story from Yahweh just delivered us, this God in the pillar of cloud and fire, this God who says, my name is I am, to the deliverance came from this thing that we just made. Why? This seems to feed their ego, but it doesn't represent truth. Folks, we live in the era of fake news, right? Where the battle over what narrative will be broadly accepted as true is fought on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in real time. It can be dizzying. Fact-checkers at all the news sites are working overtime. In such a setting, particularly, I think we are at real risk to falling prey to false narratives that can then give rise to upholding systems of oppression. So what do we do? Perhaps one beginning response. We seek truth in our narratives by incorporating diverse perspectives, even, and maybe I would say especially, when some of those perspectives are unflattering or even painful to us. If it doesn't feel good to hear it, it's probably what we need to hear, right? And this goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning. Your life experience impacts your perspective. Your perspective impacts what you can see. If we're having a hard time seeing the truth, we probably need more perspectives. And we need to recognize there are prophets in our midst who can see more clearly, who can show us a better way, who will intercede for us rather than complicitly supporting our idolatry. These are the ones to follow. We see this contrast here in the story if we read on at the end of the story Moses comes down from the mountain he's been outside of this encounter so he can see clearly as he returns how far the community has fallen how deeply they've defended they've offended the divine heart and he pleads with God to deal mercifully with them and he speaks to them and calls them to account he calls Aaron to wake up recognize his mistake 
in the same way. I believe there are brothers and sisters today calling the church into this kind of work to divest from the idolatry of our day and turn our focus to the liberating God who is right here in the cloud, ready to connect with us and bring us all into freedom and life. This often means listening to those prophets from the margins, those who have been oppressed and can help us see the oppression more clearly for what it is. Trying to take control as we lose sight of God in our midst. Receiving resources and then grasping them tightly. Allowing our stories to shift to serve new agendas. All of these are ways that we, like our forefathers and mothers, can struggle with this sin of idolatry. And when we do, I believe the effect is worse than we just have done something bad and we should feel guilty. No, I don't think it's about that. I think the tragic effect of idolatry is that it blocks our view of God. It blocks our view of God. When our eyes are transfixed on a cheap idol, we miss the beauty, the transcendence, the awe that a God that is beyond our creating or even imagining could reveal. When we try to make divinity work for us, we can't receive the transforming grace of divinity working on us. We can't let divinity work on us or in us. So this is my invitation to us throughout this spring and summer. Let us enter a season together where we examine our own lenses and frames, where we're trying to see how they limit or distort our view of God. And may we allow this divine one to call us out of idolatry into a truer kind of worship, a worship that connects us with this God who is committed not to systems that oppress, but to relationships that liberate and heal. May that be the life experience we're engaging in the weeks to come. And may all of us find that there is more we can see because of it. Amen.